Numbers chapter 6. Genesis is the book of origination. There we learn about the origin of the heavens and earth, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of the nation Israel. It's all about origination. Exodus is the book of salvation. Israel falls into sin and bondage in Egypt, but God sends them a deliverer to set his people free. And God has done the same for us, salvation. Leviticus is a book about dedication. For at Mount Sinai, God taught his people to make sacrifice and to offer up their worship to the Lord. They were to be holy just as God is holy. Which brings us to the book of Numbers. We've had origination, we've had salvation, we've had dedication. And the book of Numbers is all about organization. For now that the nation has been set free and the people have dedicated themselves to God, now God wants His people to camp together and to march in harmony with one another. Last week we saw how that God told Moses to take a census and to account for each Israelite. He tells the tribes where to camp. He issues their marching order, the alignment as they march through the wilderness. He tells the Levites how to transport the tabernacle. In other words, God gets his people organized. As the old saying goes, don't agonize, organize. God calls the nation an army. And anyone knows that a successful army is the one who can coordinate its efforts. Authority, accountability, mobilization become keys. And this is the pattern that I believe God desires for believers in Jesus. For once you are saved and have dedicated yourself to worship God, you also need to come under the authority and organization of the church. You need to find your place in the camp. And yet too many Christians buck at God's will at this very point. They want to be a lone ranger for Jesus. They'd rather go their own way, set up their own camp, march to their own drummer. They fail to see that we can do more together than we could ever do apart. All too often, leading the church is like herding cats. Ever tried herding cats? People can be finicky and fickle and freewheeling and have their own agenda, and the result is a weakened church. To be victorious, we need to be organized. Which brings us to chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. Now chapters 3 through 4 discuss the special duties of the Levites. But they were not the only ones who could make a unique dedication of their lives to God. Any Hebrew from any tribe could take the vow of the Nazarite. The word Nazir means to set apart. And a Nazarite was a person who set himself apart to God in a special way, who took a special vow. Sometimes the vow lasted a month. At other times it lasted a year. Some people became lifelong Nazarites. You know a couple by name. Such was the case with Samson. He was a lifelong Nazarite. Probably Samuel and John the Baptist also fell into that category. The vow of the Nazarite consisted of three commitments. Verse 3 tells us, 
He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice. Welch's was out of the question. Nor eat fresh grapes or raisins all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. You know, in Bible times, grapes were known as God's candy. And they are sweet to the taste. Give me a big bowl of grapes and sit me in front of a football game and I'm a happy man for a couple of hours. Wine, too, was a symbol of joy. And the fruit of the vine was synonymous with physical pleasure. But you see, the Nazarite said no to grape juice. No to the grape vine. He lived not for physical pleasure, but for spiritual satisfaction. Verse 5 tells us, In all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. The Nazarite also gave up basic grooming. He was forbidden to trim his hair or shave his beard. When you saw a Nazarite, his hair was always nappy and knotty and gnarly. For a Nazarite, every day was a bad hair day. The Nazarite would have never won the GQ award, trust me. Obviously, the Nazarite wasn't very concerned about his physical appearance. And this was the point of his vow. God wanted him to be far more concerned about internal beauty than about external beauty. And the third component of his vow is in verse 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Funerals and viewings were off limits. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Even if the deceased was a close family member, the Nazarite was not to be associated with death. He was a reminder to the people around him that real life is eternal, not just temporal. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 sums up the world system that you and I live in today. This is how the world operates. Call it the world wide web. For all that is in the world, and here's what's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is the world. This, this is the sinister world that we live in. This is the philosophy by which this world operates. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are the three temptations that we face on a daily basis. The lust of the flesh, which is the desire to feel great. Oh, how people live for that. Drugs, alcohol, sex, just whatever I can do to feel great. The lust of the eyes, the desire to look great. Cosmetic surgeries and liposuctions and makeup and the whole rest of it goes into that category. And then the pride of life, the desire to be great. Hey, this is how the world operates. This is what people want today. They want to feel great. They want to look great. Oh, they want to be great. Everyone wants to feel great. You've heard the ad, obey your thirst. 
That, that's what the world, how the world operates. And then everyone wants to look great. I tried to find a picture of Andre Agassi, but this was the best I could come up with. Image is everything. You remember those advertisements? And then everybody wants to be great. I like this ad. You can't read it, but it says, go on, be a tiger. You can be a champion too. You too can be great. This is how the world operates. But understand, the vow of the Nazarite was the antithesis to the values of this world. For the Nazarite was a walking billboard for the values of God. The Nazarite taught by his lifestyle that real joy is not found in physical but in spiritual sources. That a lasting identity is based not on inter external beauty but on internal beauty. And our ambition should not be for temporal gain but for eternal glory. You see, you and I need to be spiritual Nazarites. We too need to be walking advertisements for the values of God. We need to demonstrate to the people around us that real life is found in the spiritual, not the physical. In the internal, not the external. In the eternal, not the temporal. Take joy from the Holy Spirit, not distilled spirits. Develop an inner beauty, not just an outward facade. And reach for goals that are forever, not those things that fade away. But what if a Nazarite was riding home on the bus when all of a sudden the guy next to him drops dead of a heart attack and he comes in contact with a dead person and breaks his vow. Well, verse 9 tells us what he should do. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest. To the door of the tabernacle of meeting and the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost. Because his separation was defiled. After shaving his head, after offering the appropriate sacrifices, the man could start over fulfilling the length of his vow. But, the loss, but he lost the days that had, he had put in leading up to his violation. God allowed for some provision for him to continue his vow, but he basically had to start over again. Now when the Nazarite's vow was completed, verse 13 describes what follows. The priest would burn a burnt offering, and then a sin offering, then a peace offering, then a grain offering, then a drink offering. Five Levitical sacrifices. You can see how important this vow was in the life of the people. It was quite a barbecue. Verse 18 tells us, Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. He needs to shave his hair that has been growing long. And then he takes it and he puts it under the peace offering. And it burns up in the peace offering. You see a man's hair was always symbolic of his strength and his honor. You remember the story of Samson. When he shaved his head he lost his strength. 
Man's hair was a symbol of his strength and his honor. The peace offering spoke of our fellowship with God, the peace that we can have with God. So when this man lays down his strength under the peace offering, in essence, he's saying that all of his strength and all of his honor comes from his fellowship with God, comes from his relationship with God. Beautiful imagery here. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair, and the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. And you remember what they did with the wave offering? They waved it. You remember what they did with a heave offering? They heaved it. Boy, you guys are smart tonight. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. His vow now has been completed. And this is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. Verse 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Aaron, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, and here the Lord gives to Moses to give to Aaron a blessing, a priestly blessing that the high priest will speak over the people. And this blessing becomes a hallmark in the history of Israel. For centuries afterwards, before, before and after every sacred assembly, at the close of every evening and morning sacrifice, during times of national emergency, each time the high priest addresses God's people, he uses this very blessing. In fact, every Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck closes his service with a musical version of this same priestly blessing. I might even teach it to you tonight after, the, after we turn the tape off. And here is the priestly blessing that lasted for centuries. The Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. What a wonderful blessing. God always wants his people to be reminded. That his intentions toward them. Are to bless them. And keep them. And be gracious to them. Did you know that's God's intentions to you? To bless you and keep you. And be gracious towards you. When God looks down upon us, He lifts up His countenance. In other words, He smiles. Did you know that? That when God watches you, there is a smile on His face, not a frown. He takes joy in you. And He desires to give you His peace. This is why God wants us to rest assured that He is a blesser, not a bouncer. And that's why we need to hear this blessing over and over and over again. Verse 27 tells us, So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, when my kids were born, I put my name on my kids. They all became Adamses. That's right. And that means something. Adamses don't quit. Adamses don't lie. Adamses don't 
talk like a sailor and use foul language. Adams is show respect. Adams is fear God. Adams is love Jesus. And because my kids are Adamses, they know that their dad will never, ever abandon them. When I put my name on my kids, I gave them some guiding framework to live by. They became Adamses. But I also gave them another name. When I'm got Zach, when I'm got Natalie, when I'm got Nicholas, when I'm got Mac. And this means that though they're an Adams, they're also individuals that have to make their own choices and live their own lives and plot their own course. And as they make those choices, I trust that they're doing so guided by the values that are true of all Adamses. Now, when God puts his name on his people, he places us under his authority. He assures us of his love. He provides us common values. We are now all Christians. We all share that name, don't we? And we should have Christian values. But that name doesn't stifle our individuality. For though we are Christians, we all still have to make personal choices. We're called by God to plot our own course and find our own place. But again, we do so without violating what it means to be a Christian. And so thus, God puts his name on Israel. And his name becomes her greatest blessing. Chapter 7 tells us. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle. That he anointed it and consecrated it in all its furnishings. And the altar in all its utensils. So he anointed them and sanctified them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service. Under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none. Because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. Last week I told you that there would be a test. Do you remember that? And did you study? Did you remember? You're about to be tested. Can you recall the three different responsibilities that were given to each of the three sons of the Levites or families of the Levites. You remember what did Gershon carry? Anybody remember? The fabrics. You've got it. The tabernacle curtains and the coverings and the screens. Merari carried what? The frames. Boy, you guys are good. Those were the pillars and the boards and the bars and the sockets and the pegs and the cords. And then Kohath carried the furniture. Great. The Ark of the Covenant. 
the table of incense, the table of showbread, the menorah, the laver, the altar. Gershon carried. Fabrics, Marari carried. Frame. And then the, uh, the uh, Kothites carried. The furniture. Now, did you remember that or did we put that on the big screen? Boy, oh boy. Apparently, God allowed the fabric and the frame to be transported on a cart. Thus, they received these different carts and these oxen to pull the carts. But not the furniture. For you remember what happened when David put the ark on a cart. Remember, it hit a rock. Started to slide off the cart. And when Uzzah, you know, what mama gives his son's name, the name Uzzah, but this guy's name Uzzah. And Uzzah reaches up and he, and he grabs the cart, the ark from sliding off the cart. And the moment he does, God strikes him dead. He has touched the holy ark. It was something God never meant for human hands to touch. The ark was carried and, and the other pieces of furniture were carried by poles. Not a cart. And we've got a picture. And you see the ringlets on the four corners of the ark? It was through these ringlets that they placed poles. And so the ark was always picked up and carried. Whereas the fabric, and, and as was the other pieces of furniture as well, whereas the fabric and the frame, they were placed on the carts and transported on the carts. Here's the application, I think, for us tonight. The ox and the carts represented the technology of the day. And notice God uses technology to accomplish His work to a point. Load the fabric and the frame on a cart. Save yourself some effort and energy. But the furniture, oh the furniture, the holiest objects were not to be trusted to technology. The holy things needed a human touch. And thus God wanted them to be shouldered by holy men and carried on the poles, transported by foot. This is why listening to a sermon on the internet is no substitute to coming to church. When it comes to the holy things, technology can help, but it should never be a substitute for human touch. An email prayer list will never take the place of an actual prayer meeting. Blogs are not the same as Bible studies. Worship in cyberspace is not like worshiping in the holy place. Satellite feeds don't feed the need for real Christian fellowship. Christians should utilize the latest technology, certainly. If tithing records and newsletters and email announcements can be made online, then fine. But don't download the holy things. Don't put the holy things on a cart pulled by oxen. God wants them handled by humans. Well, verse 10 tells us, Now the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the Lord. For the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. And for the next 12 days, this is what occurred. Each day, a different leader from a different tribe offered an identical offering to the Lord. It was the Hebrew version of the 12 days of Christmas. Verse 12 tells us, And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nation, the son of Aminadab, from the tribe of Judah. 
His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb in his first year as a burnt offering. One kid of the goats as a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nation, the son of Amenadab. And for the next 11 days, each of the tribes will pick a leader who will bring an identical offering to the Lord. The rest of the chapter describes the very same gifts over and over again. You know, here's what happens sometimes at Christmas time. Since you brought up Christmas time, everybody tries to outgive the other family members. Have you ever noticed that at Christmas time? Everybody wants to give a bigger gift, and we can kind of get into a contest who can give the best gifts? It's amazing how that even something like Christmas can turn into an ego trip. This is not what God wanted to have happen in his family. Which is why each of these tribes brought an identical gift. I thought that's interesting. Each of them brought the very same thing. So one couldn't say, oh, we gave more than you did. This also may be the reason why God institutes the tithe for his people. For whether you make a million bucks or whether you live at the poverty level, God asks the same percentage from each of us. Nobody outgives the other. Well, verse 89 sums up the chapter. Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. And we discussed how that the ark was a small-scale model of God's throne in heaven. And it was over the ark of the covenant that God's presence rested in tangible, visible form. It was above the ark that God spoke to Moses in an audible voice. Today, Jesus has become our mercy seat. Just as God met Moses at the mercy seat, above the ark, God now speaks to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Several New Testament passages refer to Jesus as our propitiation, which is a fancy word that means place of mercy. Jesus is now the place where we can find God's mercy. Chapter 8 tells us, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. Remember the menorah was one lamp with seven branches and seven bowls. One lamp with seven you know, lampstands. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Remember the menorah, the seven-branch lampstand, was the only light allowed in the tabernacle. But notice, the light was useless unless it was positioned so that it could shine. That's important. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we find another seven-branch lampstand. But this lampstand is symbolic of the church. For you and I are lights. We are candles in a dark world. In Matthew 5 verse 16, we are instructed by Jesus, 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God wants our lives to shine brightly with His love and His truth and His compassion. But there are times when we need to be repositioned so that we can shine the light where it's needed the most. And our high priest, Jesus Christ, is in charge of positioning and repositioning our light. And thus, Jesus may move you into a new job tomorrow. You may get a promotion or a demotion, I'm not sure. But you may find yourself in a new job. Or perhaps tomorrow your path may cross with a new friend. Or Jesus may rearrange your schedule so that you'll be at a different place at a different time. But this is all just the high priest's way of repositioning our lamp so that it can shine the brightest and shine in those places where it's needed most. Our high priest's job is to reposition the light from time to time. Verse 4 comments on the construction of the lamp. Now this workmanship of the lampstand was hammered gold. From its shaft to its flowers it was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Hammered gold meant that the menorah was fashioned from one solid plate of gold. It was hammered into shape. It wasn't pieced together. It wasn't four or five different pieces glued together. It was made from one solid piece of gold. And I think this speaks of God's truth, the light of God. For His truth is consistent. In fact, when you study the Bible, you realize that it is a unified whole. The Bible's not bits and pieces glued together. It is a hammered work. Study your Bible and you'll realize that though it is 66 different books written by 40 plus authors from a wide range of backgrounds and cultures and vocations, nevertheless, your Bible has a unified system of thought and theology. Search the Bible from cover to cover and you'll not find a single contradiction. The biblical content is so interrelated that it's quickly, you quickly conclude that, hey, this book must have only had one author. That was the Holy Spirit. You see, God's truth is hammered out of the whole, not different ideas all pieced together. In the later half of chapter 8, the Levites are dedicated for service. We're told, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them, sprinkle water of purification on them, and let them shave all their body and let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. Now notice this, they're supposed to shave, this is their dedication, they're supposed to shave themselves, and then they're supposed to sprinkle themselves with the water of purification. Now remember, a child has no body hair, I suppose other than what's on his head. And thus the idea of shaving your body is the idea of ridding yourself of adult hair. In other words, it was a symbolic way of returning to the innocence of youth. Returning to your innocence, returning to a state of purity, rediscovering a childlikeness. And this is what happens when we start over and rededicate ourselves to the Lord. It's good to shave spiritually from time to time. I hope you know that. It's good to start over again. 
and ask God to forgive you and repent and to come back to that that original place and ask God for a fresh feeling of His forgiveness. That's where we rediscover the purity that God desires for us, the innocence, where we renew our repentance and our humility. So go home and get a shave. And then sprinkle yourself with the water of God's Word. Good A good way to rededicate yourself to God. Verse 8 tells us, Then let them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another young bull as a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. This is the Levites ordination. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord. And the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls and you shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons and then offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. Notice the Levites were the first group of people to ever do the wave. Got a picture of the Levites here. Oh yeah, there they are. And thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. After that, the Levites shall go into service of the tabernacle of meeting. You shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me, from among the children of Israel. Now I want you to go back to that picture of the wave. Would you do that? You see all those crazy people doing the wave. You know, you've got to be a real fanatic to do the wave. I hate to say that. But you've got to be a real fanatic to do the wave. This is why the Levites presented a wave offering. It was because they were fanatical about God. Notice, they were wholly given to God. Are you that fanatical? You should be. Are you wholly given to God? What percentage of your life does God have? Oh, you got 10% maybe. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I've given maybe 88, 88, 89%. No, God wants us to give ourselves to Him wholly and completely. Do we love the Lord with all our strength? I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel. The Levites were assistants to the priests. To perform the duties of the tabernacle. They were a gift to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting. And to make atonement for the children of Israel. That there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. Verse 20. Thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So the children of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. 
After that, the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. The tribe of Levites, formally dedicated to God here, they're ordained to their ministry of service in the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, you may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. Now, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, the age parameters for the Levites was 30 years old to 50 years old. Here, the beginning age is 25. Apparently, the Levites served a five-year apprenticeship before they went out to minister on their own. And notice the mandatory retirement age, 50 years old. After that, we're told... They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. After the age of 50, the Levites were limited to a mentoring role. Their job was to pass the baton to the younger generation, to help the younger guys learn the ropes. Which brings up an interesting point. You know, life is not just a race. Life is a relay race. And you know that the winner of a relay race is the team with the best exchange. A successful pass is as vital as blinding speed when it comes to a relay race. And this is why if you're an older, older Christian, if you've known the Lord for a while, this is the question that you should be asking. What am I doing? To pass on the baton. What am I doing to mentor a younger Christian? What am I doing to pass on to someone else the things that God has shown me? This is a question many of us need to be asking. Chapter 9. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time on the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. This is the Hebrews' second Passover, remember. The first Passover took place in Egypt, where the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts and the thresholds of the home. And death passed over where the blood had been applied. The second Passover commemorated the first. It was a celebration of their deliverance. And so Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. And the Jews have been keeping the Passover for the last 3,450 years. Verse 6. Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day, and those men said to him, We became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? Obviously their defilement was not their fault. It was an accidental kind of a thing. 
And Moses said to them, Stand still, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And I love Moses' approach here. I love his humility. He's not sure what God's will might be. So rather than fake it, well, I'm Moses. I need to know what God's will. I'll tell him something. Rather than assume, rather than just guess, no, he says, you wait, and I'll seek the Lord. We'll discover what his will might be. You know, we would avoid a lot of trouble if we followed his example. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. The Passover was such a significant celebration that God refused to exclude a person on a technicality. On the 14th day of the second month at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And of course, every year we reenact the Passover Seder. Many of you have been a part of that. And we always enjoy eating the bitter herbs, the horseradish, because it lights you up. And it causes your eyes to water and tears to roll down your cheeks. And it's the perfect remembrance. It's the perfect remembrance of, of the effects of sin. Because sin, too, causes tears. Sin is a bondage. It's hard to break out of. And it causes us to cry and to be sorrowful. So it's the perfect remember, remembrance of, of the Egyptian bondage. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. You remember the New Testament refers to Jesus as our Passover. And like the lamb in Moses' day, not one of Jesus' bones was broken. At a Roman crucifixion, it was a common practice to break the victim's legs. When they got near death, they'd break the legs and that would prohibit him from hiking himself up and catching a breath. And so he would suffocate and it would hasten his death. But you remember when the Roman soldier came to Jesus, he saw that Jesus was already dead at that point. And John 19 verse 36 tells us they did not break his legs, thus fulfilling this passage in your Old Testament. Now according to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger dwells among you and would keep the Lord's Passover, he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony. You shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and the native of the land. Passover was a one-size-fits-all. Just as Jesus is, he's for Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 15. Now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. The tent of the testimony from evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. Now can you imagine? The literal, visible, tangible presence of God right there within your eyesight. Every single day, hovering over the tabernacle. This was the glory cloud. The Hebrews called it the Shekinah glory. And the word Shekinah means that which dwells. The Bible says that God's presence, His glory fills the universe. But the glory that dwells with man, the Shekinah glory, was the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle. 
This was the visible, tangible manifestation of God on the earth. And so it was, the cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey, and at the command of the Lord they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained in camp. It was the cloud by day. It was the fire by night. These things guided Israel for the next 40 years. Now, even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And I love the simplicity of God's guidance. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. And this is how I want to live my life. I'm sure there is a place to examine the facts and to weigh out the situation and to consult with the experts and with the counselors but here's the bottom line. Is God moving or is God staying? Has God's presence moved on or is God's presence staying put? If God is on the move, why would I want to lag behind? If the glory cloud is staying put, it would be a mistake for me to forge ahead. I've got to be willing to pick up and take off. And I've got to be willing to hunker down and wait it out. Hey, don't make it harder than it is. The way to follow God is to just follow God. Chapter 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourselves. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the assembly and for directing the movement of the camps. Now these two trumpets were like bugles. There was a sound to break camp. There was a sound to call an assembly. There was a sound to prepare for battle. There was a sound to summon leaders. There was a sound to initiate feasts. And when they blow both of them, all the assembly shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. Both trumpets summon the people. A single trumpet called the leaders. Now when you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. The camp broke at the sound of the trumpet. And guys, do you realize that we too are listening for a trumpet blast? that will signal the breaking of camp here on earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us that when Jesus comes to rapture His church, 
when it's time for us to break camp and join our Savior in the clouds, that moment will be preceded with the shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Jesus will call us home with a silver trumpet of his own. Hey, we'll have a blast in heaven, and it'll all start with a blast on earth. And when the congregation is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow their trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also, in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your different month, of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. A different blast signaled different events. Now, these silver trumpets are used for the very first time in verse 11. Now, it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And as the cloud departs, so departs Israel. And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. In other words, they're moving north. And so they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. This was an exciting day. Now after 400 years of bondage and after an additional year of preparation, they're finally on the move. The Hebrew nation is headed home. They're about to inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. This was a thrilling day. Verse 14 tells us that Judah broke camp first, followed by Issachar and Zebulun. And then the sons of Gershon and Merari moved out behind the three eastern tribes. They were transporting the tabernacle fabrics and frames. Afterwards, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad broke camp and joined the march. They were followed by the Kohathites who carried the tabernacle furniture. And notice verse 21. It's interesting. It tells us the tabernacle would be prepared for their arrival. In other words, by the time the Kohathites arrived with the furniture, the tabernacle's frame... And tent had already been erected, and therefore the furniture was ready to move right in. Next, the western camps would break. Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. Finally, in verse 25, the northern tribes joined the march. Dan and Asher and Naphtali. And notice what these last three tribes are called in verse 25. The rear guard. Guys, there's nothing wrong with pulling up the rear. Sometimes it's an honor. You put your best and your most vigilant troops in the rear to protect your army from ambush. Nothing wrong with bringing up the rear. Verse 28. Thus was the order of march of the children of Israel according to their armies when they began their journey. Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. Now here Moses' father-in-law is named Reuel. If you go back in Exodus chapter 18, he went by the name of, anybody remember? Jethro. Probably they were two names for the same guy. Hobab then was Moses' brother-in-law. And here he employs Hobab to be a guide for Israel. 
He was a Midianite, so he was from this same region. And because he was a Bedouin shepherd, Moses figured he'd be a valuable asset. He could find his way in the desert, in the wilderness. He was familiar with the environment. Now, this brings up an interesting point. Moses is following God. But notice he hires a scout. <laughs> that's, that's kind of interesting. God sets the direction for Moses. I mean, the cloud rises and moves. The cloud sets and stays. I mean, how much more definitive do you want the will of God to be expressed? I mean, God is being very clear about moving them out. But Moses, somewhat, for some reason, still feels the need to hire a scout. To scout out the details. You know, I think that you'll find in any venture for God that there is always God's part and your part. Yes, we follow God. Yes, God leads the way. But we also need to scout out the situation from time to time. God wants us to use our heads. He wants us to use good wisdom. I think the two go hand in hand. Well, Moses says to Hobab, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. Hobab wanted to return to Midian. So Moses said, he sweetens the pot. Please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness. And you can be our eyes. Hobab, you can see things we can't. You're familiar with this land. You can be our scout. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. Moses makes a deal. If Hobab goes with Israel, then Moses will share the wealth with Hobab. He'll share God's blessing. And so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And notice the ark always led the march. God's presence The Shekinah glory always led the way. They followed the cloud. They followed the ark. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. And so it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. And so they begin their journey. And the title of next week's Bible study, How a Two-Week Journey Turns into 40 Years. And that's what we'll study next week.